You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. Hi, this is Kim, and I'm here with show number seven on the relationship habits. With this being Valentine's Day in two days and the month of love, February, I thought it would be a good time to talk about some of the destructive habits we use in our relationships and give you some constructive ones that can support relationships. Before I even get started, I want to caution people about listening to this material and thinking they've been a terrible person because they've used some of these destructive relationship habits. We all have. We've learned them from people close to us. We've had them used with us. And the truth is, sometimes they actually work. So that's the reason we keep using them. And most of the time we use them because we don't know a better way. I'm going to start with the destructive ones, and I'm going to conclude with the more constructive ones. I'm sure all of you have had the experience of being in a relationship with someone important to you who wanted you to do something you didn't want to do. I think everyone's had that experience. At least everyone I've talked to has. When I asked them about the behaviors that other person used to get them to do things their way, they came up with a long list of behaviors that were quite damaging to the relationship. These behaviors were compiled by Dr. William Glasser, and they're part of Choice Theory Psychology. When Choice Theory was first developed by Dr. Glasser, it was thought of as an explanation of human behavior. It actually explains why everybody does what they do. There really are no exceptions. We are all driven by our five basic needs, and based on how we see the world, we're always controlling to get what we want. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make us selfish. It's what everybody does. And even if you think that you've done something selfless, doing something really nice for someone else, even when that was difficult for you, You actually did it to match the picture in your head of you as a helpful person. With the addition of these relationship habits in the mid-90s, they became a way of life. Many of Glasser's students committed to decrease their use of these destructive relationship habits while increasing the use of the connecting ones. I'm going to start with the destructive behaviors first, and I want you to be thinking about not what others have done to you, but I want you to think about what behaviors you have used. The reason I'm asking you to do that is because there's only one person whose behavior we have control over, and that's ourselves. We can point fingers at other people all day long, but that isn't going to change them, and it isn't going to help us. I know that if you start using less of the destructive habits and more of the positive ones, your relationship will change. The other person doesn't even have to know what you're doing. It's great when both of you can do these together, but it isn't required or necessary for you to have some success. I'd like you to think about your relationship as being built on a concrete foundation, reinforced with rebar, so it's pretty darn strong. And every time you use one of these destructive relationship habits, you may get what you want, but you are also simultaneously picking up a pickaxe and swinging it at the concrete foundation of your relationship. If you're a weakling like me, you might swing that pickaxe many times before anything happens. But at some point, there's going to be a little chip that comes off that concrete. And if you keep swinging that pick, that little chip is going to turn into a big chip, which will turn into a crack. And the crack will widen and lengthen. And before you know it, you're standing in a pile of rubble. 
I don't want that to happen to anyone's relationship when you have some control over your part of the equation. The first habit is complaining. Have you ever done that? I'm not talking about complaining about the weather or a bad hair day or traffic. I'm talking about complaining about a person to that person to try to get them to change. This never feels good and usually doesn't result in the change you're looking for. The second one is blaming. This is a habit I used a lot with my younger son. I can remember when he was in high school saying to him, well, Kyle, it's all your fault. We can't go for ice cream. You didn't clean your room like you said you would. Or it's all your fault. We can't go to the movies because you didn't finish your homework. Saying it's all your fault. I know some women who have said to their partners, it's all your fault. We're lost. You wouldn't ask for directions. The next one is a little complicated because it's called criticizing. The reason it's complicated is because there's people out there who actually believe in something called constructive criticism. Dr. Glasser said constructive criticism was an oxymoron, and I like to say I've never been criticized and felt constructed afterwards. I do, however, allow for those times when you have a blind spot that you can't see, and someone you trust, someone you respect, brings that blind spot to your attention. They're telling you about something you can't see. You're usually very grateful to them. But the difference between what those people do and criticizers are, that criticizers give you that information with a strong understanding that you'll fix it. The people who are giving you that information to be helpful, they don't have a vested interest in you changing or doing anything different. They're only giving you the information so you can decide what you're going to do. That I call constructive, but I don't call it criticism. That's constructive information. The next one is one, I hate to say this, ladies, but we are better at it than our male counterparts, and that is nagging. I don't know where it comes from, but somehow we think if we've asked three times, asking 3,000 more might just get us what we want. I think many of you can probably relate that nagging rarely gets you what you want. In fact, it often results in a condition we then blame our partners for called selective hearing. If nagging is your habit of choice, I can give you four options. You can keep nagging. I'm not trying to stop you from doing any of these things. I just want you to remember that when you do it, you are doing some damage to your relationship. So you can keep nagging. You could do it yourself. If you're not capable of doing it yourself, you could hire someone else to do it. Or you could change your mind about how important it is to you. The next one is threatening. If you do this, I'm going to blank. And you can fill in that blank with something pretty painful. It's a threat. And we all know that if we make a threat, we have to follow through. So that takes us to the next one, which is punishing. And if we're talking about male and female relationships, we often have different ways to punish. One partner usually withholds affection or sex, and the other partner often withholds attention. And we seem to pick the behavior that's going to hurt the other partner the most. The last one is bribing or rewarding to control. It's when we say something like, if you do this, I'll give you that. And we're trying to pick something that the other person really wants. Most people will perform for a reward. The problem with rewarding, though, is that no one likes to be controlled. And even though people perform for rewards, they're not feeling very warm and fuzzy towards the person who's dangling that carrot. And usually after the reward has been earned, 
the behavior goes back to what it was pre-reward or even gets worse. If you want to learn more about this, you can read the book by Alfie Cohn called Punished by Rewards. His last name is spelled K-O-H-N. It's a book that looks at the research and shows that implementing reward programs often shows improvement in the behavior. And then there's a plateau. And once the plateau is reached, people generally stop rewarding. Gradually, they stop. And the research also stops. So there's this great support for reward systems because it gets better behavior. In those studies that went beyond the plateau period, what they found was when the reward stopped, the behaviors not only returned to baseline, but they actually got worse. So rewarding can often cause behavior to worsen rather than to get better over the long haul. It's also important to think if you're starting to reward, especially your children, when you start with smiley face stickers when they're in kindergarten, you know by the time they're 10, they're going to want a video game, and when they turn 16, they'll be looking for a car. You have to constantly up the ante on the rewards in order to get the behavior that you want, and we're losing track of that internal motivation that our children have to grow, to learn, and to develop. So now we know about the destructive relationship habits. If you've been using them, and I'm pretty sure you have, don't feel bad. One thing I know is that people do the best that they know at any moment to get what they want. So you weren't doing anything terrible. If you had known a better way, you would have done it. Now you have the information for a better way. The problem is we've been doing this habitually. Even though you may make a genuine commitment to stop using these, it's going to be very difficult. It's almost like we're addicted to external control. That's what these habits are about. We're externally trying to control people to do things they don't want to do. We want to get into recovery from external control. One of the ways to do that is to become conscious of when you use these behaviors. A lot of times we resort to these behaviors when we're tired, when we're angry, when we don't feel well, when we're short on time. Anything that stresses us, we tend to rely on our habits. We have to develop new habits. I also like to caution people about trying to just stop these behaviors. I don't believe stop doing plans work. You have to tell yourself what you're going to do instead. For example, if I say stop thinking about pink elephants, if you keep thinking about pink elephants, something really bad is going to happen. So stop thinking about them right now. Chances are you're thinking about pink elephants. So I advise you not to try to stop. Just try to become conscious of when you're using it. Have a little dialogue in your head next time you nag or next time you complain where you just say, hmm, I'm doing it again. There I go, swinging that pickaxe. Is that really what I want to do? And as you become conscious, I guarantee you that you'll be using the behaviors less. Let's talk about the behaviors that strengthen relationships. There's seven of those too. There's nothing magic about the number seven. Dr. Glasser said he came up with the number seven because it worked for Stephen Covey. He thought it might work for him. Stephen Covey, as you know, is the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's plenty more destructive relationship habits as well as constructive ones. The first one is listening. I know a lot of people who think they're great listeners because they actually wait for the person talking to finish their sentence before they jump in, but that's basically listening to respond. I'm talking about listening for understanding. This is a much deeper level of listening. 
This is where we try to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, in their skin, look at the world through their eyes from their perspective. When you do that, you may be able to realize that you're both right. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. There are multiple ways to look at things. I can remember when I was about 13 years old, I came downstairs, it was time to go to school. And I said to my mother, Mom, I can't go to school today. And she says, what's the matter, honey? Are you sick? And I said, no, look at my nose. I have this big pimple on the end of my nose. I can't go to school like this. Everybody will laugh at me. My mother's response was, Kimberly Marie, that's what she always called me when she wasn't happy with me. She said, Kimberly Marie, go get dressed. You're going to school. You won't even remember that five years from now. Well, it's been longer than five years, and I still remember it, Mom. I'm not saying my mother should have let me stay home from school that day. I don't think that would have been responsible. But if she could have said something like, Oh, honey, I remember one time I went to school with a pimple on the end of my nose, and I thought everybody was going to laugh at me too. And you know what? Nobody noticed. I was the only one who really paid attention to it. She also might have been able to give me some makeup that covered it up, but she didn't do that either. Now, I'm not here to criticize my mother. My mother's a wonderful person, and I love her dearly. But it's just an example of how we listen to respond instead of listening for understanding. Supporting is the next one. I like to use a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to talk about supporting. He said, The true measure of a man, and I like to add, or a woman, is not where they stand in times of comfort and convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. The reason I use this quote is because it's easy to support people when they're doing what you want them to do and being the person you want them to be. It's not so easy to support people when they're doing things that are frustrating for you. I think of the partner who comes home from work one day and says, Honey, I'm so excited. I got that job that I've been looking for, that promotion we've been trying to get. There's only one problem. It's in another state. I'll have to leave on Sunday nights and I'll be back on Friday. And then the spouse is very frustrated with that. But if you're going to do support, you need to support the person in doing what they want to do. And then you figure out what need of yours is going to be frustrated and figure out how you're going to be able to meet that need without threatening the sanctity of your marriage, if that's what's important to you. The hardest example for me with supporting was when my son Kyle came to me a week before his 18th birthday and asked me to join the Army. Because he wasn't yet 18, he needed me to go with him to the Army recruiter's office and sign the papers. My first thought was, no. My second thought was, hell no. My third thought involved duct tape and a closet, but I didn't do any of those things because I remembered these darn relationship habits and realized that I needed to support my son in what he wanted to do, even though it was going to cause my needs to be incredibly frustrated while he was gone. He did go to Iraq, not once but twice, and he's back now and he's doing well and I'm so proud of him. But sending him off to war was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. The next one is about encouraging if you saw the original Dumbo movie from the 1950s, you might know a little something about encouraging. You remember Dumbo was an elephant with big ears and he could fly. 
but if you watch that original movie, the first time he flew, he didn't know he could fly because Dumbo was wasted. He was hallucinating, and he passed out in a tree. These are the movies we made for our children in the 50s. I don't know. When he woke up in a tree limb, he couldn't understand how he got there. And his friend, Timothy the mouse, was there. So Dumbo said, how did I get up in this tree? And Timothy said, Dumbo, you flew up there. Those big old ears of yours. You can fly. And Dumbo said, that's ridiculous. Elephants don't fly. And the mouse said, you can, Dumbo. You can. I was with you. You flew right up into that tree. And Dumbo said, that's crazy. Elephants don't fly. So the mouse picked up a magic feather. There was nothing magic about that feather, but he told Dumbo it was magic. And he said, Dumbo, take this feather. And when you have this feather in your trunk, you'll be able to fly. And Dumbo believed him and went off flying. When I think of encouraging, I think we need to be that magic feather for the people in our lives. We need to believe in them until they believe in themselves. And encouraging is very different from nagging. Because when you nag, you're trying to get someone to do what you want them to do. When you're encouraging, you're trying to encourage the person to do what they want to do. And that makes the world of difference. The next one is trusting. Trusting is a complicated thing because people often trust someone to be the person they want them to be rather than to be the person they are. It's like we have a picture of this person in our head and it doesn't even resemble the person that's right in front of us. And we trust them to be the person that's in our head, causing frustration not only for ourselves, but also for them. It's impossible for them to live up to the expectations we have sometimes. Based on a difficult time I had in my life, I've developed something I like to call the unconditional trust challenge. I trust everybody. And what I mean by that is I trust everybody to be the person they've shown me they are until they show me something different. Of course, I believe people can change. I'm a counselor. I have to believe in the power of change. But people change when they want to change, not because I see them as a better version of themselves. And because of choice theory, there's one thing I know I can trust every single person to do. Every single person, no matter what they're doing, is doing the best thing they know to do at that point in time to get what they want. And if I care about you, I want you to have what you want, even if it's something that is not good for me. I'm in control of my happiness. I'm in control of making sure I get what I need. If I can get what I need in relationship with you, that's great. I hope you can get what you need in relationship with me. But if I find that there's things you want that cause some frustration with my needs, then it's up to me to figure out how I'm going to get them met. I don't get to beat you over the head to try to get you to make me happy. Respecting is the next one. In all my years of teaching these concepts, when I ask a room full of people if there's anyone that respect isn't important to, no one ever raises their hand. We all want to be respected. It's a common human condition. The problem is, as children, we were all taught some version of the golden rule to treat people the way you want to be treated. Problem with that is, it just doesn't work. For example, I'm a female from north of the Mason-Dixon line. When someone calls me ma'am, I don't feel the least bit respected. I feel old. I know the person calling me ma'am is respecting me the best way they know how. And if they're actually calling me ma'am, they probably don't know me very well, which means we don't have much of a relationship, and that's fine. 
But if I'm in relationship with you, I better find out what it is that you need to feel respected. That way I can give you what you need, not what I would want in a similar situation. In the 90s, John Gray wrote a book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And he talked about how the genders behave differently when they're upset. Now, certainly there's exceptions to this. But generally, when a woman is upset, she needs to talk about it. And once is never enough. She needs to talk about it multiple times because women tend to be external processors. They need to hear it over and over and over again while they're figuring out what to do. This makes absolutely no sense to the man because men generally are not external processors. They process internally. So when they hear a woman who's upset, they either want to leave her alone to give her space to figure things out, or they want to solve the problem. They want to fix it and they give advice. Both of these behaviors tend to enrage the woman because what she wants is for the man to sit there and listen to her and just hear her out without trying to solve the problem. Similarly, when the husband is upset, he needs to be alone to figure it out. He doesn't want to talk about it. He might call someone that he knows who has the answer and find out how to do it because he's looking for a solution. It's easy to see that in this case, we are both using the golden rule. We're trying to treat the other the way that we want to be treated. The husband just needs space, but what do we women do? We run after him and we say, oh, honey, what's wrong? Talk to me. Tell me what the problem is. Did I do something? Are you mad at me? And we're trying to get him to talk when talking is not what he wants. So I love the new and improved platinum rule by Tony Alessandra. He's in the business world. And his platinum rule goes like this, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. It makes so much more sense. If you're in a relationship with someone that's important to you, whether that's your spouse, your child, your parent, a coworker, you probably want to find out what respect looks like to them so you can deliver it when you're trying to respect them, rather than stubbornly clinging to the way that you like, hoping it conveys the same message. The next one is accepting. This is a hard one. I often think of the serenity prayer when I hear the word accepting. It's a great one, and it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In choice theory circles, we have tweaked that serenity prayer a bit, and we say it differently. It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change. Do you know who they are? Everybody. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that person is me. This is a way I try to live my life, and I say try because it's kind of like wearing that bracelet, what would Jesus do? I don't think anybody can live it 100%, but I really work at it hard to be able to accept the people in my life I cannot change, and that would be everybody. Now, sometimes I run across someone that I really don't like, and I don't have to subject myself to their behavior. Just because you accept someone doesn't mean you need to keep them in your life or keep them close to you. I often talk about addiction. If you have someone in your life who's addicted to substances and you love them, can be one of the most painful things in the world because you so want them to get help and to stop using. The problem is they don't want to stop. 
so you can accept the fact that they have a life that they get to live, and this is the way they're choosing to live it. And then you get to decide how you're going to choose to be in relationship with that person. Are you going to stay close? Are you going to enable him or her? Are you going to criticize and nag and try to get them to stop? Are you going to distance yourself and spend a limited amount of time with them? Or are you going to cut them off and not engage with them at all? That's your decision. But stop trying to change people who don't want to change. And the last one is simply negotiating differences. I say simply, it's not so easy. I do some work with the military, and the army has this phrase they call battle mind. And when you're in battle mind, it means that you have an objective that you need to accomplish, and you can't be thinking about anything else. You have to put your blinders on and march straight ahead towards whatever the goal is of your mission. You can't be thinking of your wife who you think is sleeping with your best friend or your child who just got kicked out of school for drinking. You have to be focused on your objective. And when we're not in battle, when we're dealing with our loved ones and we're trying to negotiate a difference, we often go into battle mind, even as civilians. We want to go into that negotiation and make sure we win. This is very destructive for relationships. We need to change that battle mind to a different mind, a mind where we decide we're going to talk about this difference until we figure out a solution that we're both happy with. Not a compromise, because compromises mean everybody has to give something up. This is a, this is a deal that we're happy with, both people. So just imagine that you're a couple and you get one week's vacation. You want to go to the beach and the other person wants to go to the mountains. What could you do so you both win? There's a million things that could be done. Well, maybe not a million. But there's a lot of things that could be done. You could flip a coin and one of you goes first to where you want this year. Next year you go somewhere else. You could find a place that has beach and mountains. If you both have high freedom needs, you could take separate vacations. You could take two long weekends. You could do half the vacation in the mountains, half the vacation at the beach. You could decide to stay home this year, save that money, and use it for that big cruise you wanted to take but couldn't afford this year. When you get creative and decide that the other person winning is just as important as you winning, you'll be surprised at what you can come up with. You might be interested in a book I wrote called Secrets of Happy Couples. Loving Yourself, Your Partner, and Your Life. It's available on Amazon. Happy Valentine's Day. Tune in next week when I'm going to talk about sex and romance, dance or battle. Hope you'll join us. Talk with you then. With the addition of these relationship habits in the mid-90s, choice theory actually became a way of living one's life for those of us who decide... <clears throat> With the addition of these relationship habits in the mid-90s, many of us decided to make choice theory a way of life by working hard to eliminate the destructive relationship habits from our life and adding in the 
connecting ones as often as we can. And adding the connecting ones as more habitual behavior now. And using the connecting habits instead. With the addition of these relationship habits, With the addition of these relationship habits in the mid-90s, they became a way of life. Many of Glasser's students committed to trying, committed to decrease, many of Glasser's students committed to decrease their use of these destructive relationship habits while increasing the use of the healthy ones. while increasing the use of the connecting ones.